Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew again. We are in the end of chapter 15, Matthew 15. I'm so grateful for Bertrice and his testimony, his faithfulness. He revealed his age this morning and my fine math, math skills, I understand that 51 and 31 equals 20. <laughs> you have plenty of years of ministry ahead of you, brother. All right. Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 32 this morning. Let's read the word of the Lord together. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. This is probably Magdala across the Sea of Galilee. Chapter 16, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. We've been tracking through Matthew 15. Understand, if you've been with us, you would remember that Last week, we talked about the fact that, that in chapter 15 is the first time that Jesus left Jewish territory and went, in, went into the surrounding land, into primarily Gentile territory. He went there to kind of get away and to have a reprieve, so to speak, but the people followed him, and so he had the interaction with the, the Canaanite woman. He then went on healing there in 15, verses 29 to 31. He did great works of healing among the Gentile people. We talked last week about the, the mission of God and how the mission of God is to all people, all nations. And we come here to our text this morning, and we have two passages, verses 32 to the end of chapter 15, and then 16, verses 1 through 4, that are somewhat repetitive. So if you've been here and you've been going through our study of Matthew, both of these passages should have somewhat have kind of rung a bell. You should have gone, well, that seems like we just heard that. Just a few weeks ago, we looked at the, the feeding of the 5,000, but now we have a feeding of 4,000. And then a, a while back, we heard Jesus in this interaction uh, with the Pharisees and scribes talking about the sign of Jonah when they wanted a sign from him. 
And so it seems like this could be somewhat repetitive. You have 15, 32 to 39, which is very similar to 14, 13 to 21. You can jot that down in your notes. And then 16, 1 to 4 is very similar to 12, 38 to 42. And so the question then I think we need to ask when we come to something like this is what's going on? Why did Matthew include these very similar accounts in his gospel? Why did he find it necessary to to come to both of these accounts? Well, first, I would say this, is that we need to remember that this is not just Matthew writing down stuff. This is Matthew inspired by God to write what God wanted Matthew to write. And so there's an there's a overly critical school of thought where, where people would come and they would seek to answer this question of why are these both here without any regard to the fact that Scripture is the Word of God. That means God inspired Matthew to write what he wrote and to not write what he didn't write. And so we have to be careful when we come to a text like this and we consider why is the feeding of the 4,000 here just two chapters, well, yeah, one chapter really, over from the feeding of the 5,000. The first thing we have to remember is the truth of 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, all of Scripture. And so that means the feeding of the 5,000 is for our benefit, the feeding of the 4,000 is for our benefit. It is useful and is breathed out for God. So the question then we must ask is, what is of such importance that God would say, you need to know what I did among the 5,000. You need to know among what I did among the 4,000. What is it that's so important for us to understand? The second thing I would say when we think about what's going on is this, is that we need to realize that these accounts are similar, but they are not the same. They're similar, but they are not the same. Some, some critics would try to undermine the veracity, the trustfulness, the truthfulness of Scripture by saying, well, this is just something that got put in again. It's just inserted. It's the same thing over again. And, and it must have got inserted either Matthew didn't know or somebody came down later and inserted it. But that's not right. Because the two accounts are not the same in important ways, important details. If you just think about in the feeding of the 5,000, the numbers of people are different, 5,000 and 4,000. In the 5,000, Jesus is feeding a primarily Jewish audience. In the feeding of the 4,000 we have here, he's feeding a primarily Gentile audience. The number of, of bread and, and fish is different in the two accounts. And so that's important. And also the number that is left over, the number of excess is also different in the two accounts. So the details are different in specific ways, showing that Matthew knew that these were two different events where God miraculously fed large multitudes, but the contexts were different, and it's important to note that they are different in some, some, some crucial details, crucial ways. The same thing with the discourse on the sign of Jonah. In, in the previous account in Matthew 12, who comes to Jesus? The, the Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus. Here it's a different group. Here it's the Pharisees and Sadducees come to Jesus. And they ask. And Jesus' reply is a bit different in the two places. He does use the sign of Jonah. He does talk to them and say, you're seeking a sign, but I'm not going to give you a sign. The sign of Jonah is sign enough. He does tell them that, but he elaborates his answer differently in some important ways. So what is it then that is important for us to learn from these texts. What is it that would be so important for us to come to the text this morning and say, what is God teaching us? 
The first thing that we're going to look at is that these two accounts display God's character. Particularly, we'll look at that in the, the feeding accounts. The feeding accounts display God's character. And this is important because why? Because man is constantly trying to malign and undermine the character of God. Trying to make God into something or into someone that he is not. Particularly, man does that by trying to make God look like us. Instead of us being in the image of God, we try to put God in the image of man. Okay, so we want to look at the character of God. The second thing we're going to see is that the feeding accounts display God's mission. And we won't look at this in details. We looked at it last week, but it's, it's worth saying again that when we look at this and we see Jesus working in one account among the Jews, and now Matthew, remember, Matthew is writing his gospel to a primarily Jewish audience, and he's expressing the mission of God. And so now we come to an account where God does this great work in a primarily Gentile audience. He is again driving home this point to his primarily Jewish audience that God's mission is to all nations, to all nations. And so it accounts and it displays God's mission. And then finally, we'll look at this, the discourse about the sign of Jonah. And this is a reminder. It confronts our propensity to choose ignorance and denial of the signs that are right in front of us. And so we'll look at that this morning. Let's look first at the feeding of the 4,000. And let's see the character of God on display. So the character of God on display here in the feeding of the 4,000. Now, the situation here is that, that Jesus is in the, the region known as the Decapolis. It's on the, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So he had been on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee last week when he was in Tyre and Sidon. So he's traveled down, he's traveled around the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and he's still in primarily uh, uh, Gentile land. He's, he's ministering and he's healing the people. That's where you see there in, in verses 29 to 31 where we read in the word of the Lord that he went there, there's crowds following him, and he is healing the crowds. So that's what he's doing. It's a primarily Gentile crowd, and he's working among them. They have been with him for how long, does it say? Three days. Good job. All right, we're reading the word. All right, they've been there for three days with him, and the problem with them being there three days is they did not bring their lunch, and there wasn't a McDonald's around, so they had not eaten, right? They were hungry. And so, a similar fashion, the feeding of 5,000, what happens? Jesus the, has the disciples gather loaves of bread and fishes, and here it says a few small fish particularly, but he gathers seven loaves and fish, and he multiplies them miraculously to feed the crowd. And it is important to say he did it miraculously. We don't worship a God that we say, well, we're just going to explain everything naturally. We worship a God who does great things, who is indeed God, and who does indeed do miraculous things, and this is an example of one of the things he did. And we read in verse 37 of chapter 15 that what? All ate and all were satisfied. So what does this tell us then about the character of God? What does it tell us? Well, I would just point out the reason we can learn from God's character, learn about God's character from this passage is kind of really a basic observation, right? Is that God acts out of who he is. And so what God does is informed and driven by who God is. Over the years, just talking to people and inner dialoguing with people, whether it's people who are just um, kind of what, what I would describe as maybe um, 
maybe innocently, innocently skeptical. Just they're, they're skeptical of the Lord or his existence or why he would do something, but it's not, they're not aggressive. They're not coming at you, right? Um, or whether it's them or whether it's someone who is kind of coming at you as a Christian, well, why would God do this? I'm not going to worship a God who would do this. And, and they, they have all these questions. Maybe it's some that are kind of aggressive. Maybe it's some that are just kind of genuinely going, I don't understand. Well, what I've found in, in both cases, when people don't understand something about God, the, the question is, and is answered by understanding the character of God because God acts out of who he is. If we just take one quick case in point this morning to think about this and you think about why is it that God would destroy the very men that he made with a great flood over all the earth? Why would he do that? I mean, how could he do that? Is that not cruel? Is that not just, just over the top? How could you worship that God? right? That, that question, I've heard that question from someone who just doesn't understand. I've heard that question from someone who's trying to kind of manipulate and trap you in a conversation. The answer is the same for both. The reason God did that is because it comes out of who God is. Well, who is God? We have to understand that God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. And so God acts out of that. And when everything in Man rose to such a point that even his thoughts and intentions, everything in him was evil. Then God's holiness and righteousness and justice demanded that God act. If he does not act, he is no longer holy, righteous, and just. He had to act, right? We have to understand God's holiness. We have to understand that God is righteous, that God is just. He never ceases to be one of those. But we also see what else in the flood. We also see God's mercy, don't we? We see his goodness and his kindness. And that's where a lot of people try to just overlook that and push it aside. But we see that, don't we? We see that in the fact that that God spared Noah and his family. He was merciful and kind and good to Noah and his family, wasn't he? And he spared him. And in so doing, he was merciful and good and kind to who? To all of mankind. But not only all of mankind, he was also merciful and good and kind to his creation. Why? Because he spared creation. He brought them onto the ark. And so we see God's character out of how God acted. And it's no different here in Matthew 15, 32 to 39. Let me just point out three attributes we see here of God's character. The the first one is we see his compassion. We see the compassion of God here in verse 32. Now, Jesus is described as being compassionate often in Scripture. J.C. Ryle comments that, that compassion is the most common feeling described of for Jesus. It is the most common feeling that, that the writers say he was compassionate. He was merciful. Right? Well, here's unique because here he's not just described as being compassionate, but Jesus says what? I have compassion on them. Jesus himself looks and says, I have compassion on the crowd. I have mercy on them. In the Old Testament, the, the word used for compassion, we think about the Old Testament coming up to this point. They describe God's deep feeling of mercy or pity on his children. It's his deep, tender, unconditional love that he sets upon those whom he calls. It expresses this, this deep, strong attachment to his people. 
That's why you read in Psalm 103, verse 13 and 14, this beautiful statement. It says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. The Lord shows compassion on us just like a father shows compassion and mercy to his children. It's, it's the mercy of God and the forgiveness towards his people when they deserve judgment. Throughout the Old Testament, there's a couple references if you're taking notes. Deuteronomy 13, 17, 2 Kings 13, 23. Both of these are examples where, where God shows mercy, forgiveness, compassion towards his people when they deserved judgment. When the people know judgment is hand, when they are struggling to have hope, do you know what it is that they call to mind to remember? It's the compassion of God. It's the compassion of God they call to mind through sorrow and, and times of grief and uncertainty. So we read in Lamentations 3, 22 to 23, that, that beautiful verse says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, never ceases. His mercies or his compassion, it's the very same Hebrew word, never come to an end. They're new every morning, every morning. And then that great declaration, great is your faithfulness. This is the compassion of God. And as we see that throughout the Old Testament, the description and the character of God, then we come to see Christ and his ministry, the very Son of God, then we should rightly expect to see what? That he is compassionate. And we see that here. We see it throughout his ministry that he is compassionate. Our Lord was compassionate. Here he says, I have compassion on the crowd. It was the compassion of Christ in Luke 7, 13 that led him to raise the son of the widow of Nain. It was the compassion of the Lord that led him to call the disciples to pray for workers in the harvest, to send out workers. Why? Because he looked on the crowd. Remember in Matthew 9, he looked on the crowd and he had compassion for them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were helpless. They were harassed and he had compassion on them. In Matthew 14, it was his compassion that led him to feed the 5,000. In Matthew 20, 19 to 34, it was the compassion of Christ that led him to heal two blind men. In Mark 141, it was the compassion of Christ that led him to cleanse the leper. And in Mark 634, it was the compassion of Christ that led him to teach the crowd. The compassion of Christ led him to do all sorts of things, from miracles to teaching to praying to sending out the disciples. It was the compassion of Christ. It's the compassion of God that, that is the theme of two of the most common parables we know. In Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you look at Luke 10, 33 sometime, it's the, the Good Samaritan shows what? When he sees the man laying on the side of the road, he has what? Compassion for him. And we're called to go and be like him and to show mercy as the Good Samaritan did. In Luke 15 to 20, do you remember the prodigal son? A, a, a parable that most know. Well, you know what the father has on the son when he, all has been done, right? The son has been gone. He's squandered all of his rights. He's, he's lived in sinful living. And when he comes down the road and the father sees him, what does the father feel? Compassion. Compassion is a picture of God the father. He's feeling compassion. It's the compassion of God. He felt compassion and he ran and embraced his son. The compassion of our Lord is clear. And here, in this moment, when he sees the crowd gathered around him, he knows they've been there for three days. They haven't eaten. And what does he say? I have compassion on them. I have compassion. This deep down within my bowels, 
compassion. I move deep within me for them. I have mercy for them. Do you know the compassion of the Lord? Have you thought about his goodness and his mercy toward you? He's a compassionate God. The second attribute of God that we see here is his goodness. The goodness of God. Look at, look at verse 37. Verse 37, we, we know the account. We know what happened. They go and get the bread. They come back. Verse 37, they all ate and were satisfied. We see his goodness displayed here. In Matthew 14, his goodness was displayed to a Jewish crowd. In Matthew 15, here, his goodness is displayed to a Gentile crowd. Again, it shows the scope of God's mission to all people. So that verse 37 says that all ate and were satisfied. That is similar to, to the, pre, the feeding of the 5,000. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, Bill drew this out when he, when he preached a few weeks ago on the feeding of the 5,000. He pulled this out. That this wasn't an instance where Jesus sat there and he looked among the crowd. And he said, you know, what? I'm going to feed those who have confessed me as Lord. I'm going to feed those who are Jews. I'm going to feed those who have humbled themselves. No, it says he fed them all. His goodness was to all of them. He gave to all of them. His goodness shown to all the people, Jew and Gentile. That's why we read Psalm 145 to begin our time this morning. You remember what it said in Psalm 145 that we will praise the Lord, talking about praising the Lord for his greatness, right? That we would lift high and bless his name forever and ever. His, his greatness is unsearchable, it said. And then he goes on as the psalmist keeps working down the greatness of God, how it's displayed in his mighty works. He keeps on working this out. He comes down to the reality where he praises God for his Goodness, And he makes this statement in verse 9. He says that the Lord is good to all. The Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he's made. So you've got the compassion and the goodness of God right here in Psalm 145, verse 9. God is good to all. So this psalm then, we understand, is a psalm of praise for God's greatness through his goodness and mercy and kindness to all people by what? His mighty works. Mighty works just like the feeding of the 5,000, just like the feeding of the 4,000. In Psalm 145, verse 4 to 7, when he's talking about one generation commending the works of the Lord to another and telling, do you know what God has done? Do you know what God's done? Let me tell you what God's done. He says that over and over and over. And he says that they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. Your abundant goodness. So listen, children, youth, we stand here as people, you would say, well, he's old. That's okay. You can call us old. But we're here to tell you that God is abundant in goodness. He's abundant in goodness. When you think he's not, you're wrong. He is. He's abundant in goodness. He is great and greatly to be praised. His goodness is shown and displayed to all. And it's seen through his mighty works. Now, Let's just think about, just for a moment, this statement that his good, he is good to all. He's good to all. We need to consider that. That means that according to the Word of God, that means that everyone sitting in this room has experienced God's goodness. And that doesn't matter if you're a believer or you're an unbeliever here today. You have experienced God's goodness. This is another way of saying common grace. It's a description of that God's common grace to all people. 
It's, it's God's good disposition, his, his good acts, His good mercy, His good care shown to all of creation. And so whether you sit here today as a skeptic or a hater of God, or whether you sit here today blown away by God's goodness, rejoicing in His kindness, magnifying Him for His grace, you all, we all, have experienced God's goodness. Now just think about it. Do you have breath in your lungs today? It's because God is good to you. Have you experienced success in your life? Do you have various gifts and abilities that you can't explain? I'm just good at that. I don't know why. It's because God has been good to you. You have health, periods of health. Perhaps you have bad health now and you look back and go, man, I remember the good days where I had good health. You have good health because God is good to you. Here's one maybe you don't think about that often. Are you as awful and wicked as you possibly could be? Probably not. I don't think so. Any of us. Why not? Why aren't you as awful and wicked as you could be? I mean, just think about it. Scripture says that the heart is desperately wicked. So why are you not? It's because God is good. He's good. He's graciously restraining you from being as awful as you could be. God is good. Maybe another one you should consider is this. Have you experienced the full wrath of God upon you? None of us have. None of us have. Now, those of us who are believers, we know why. We, we come and we say, we have not and we will not experience the full wrath of God. Why? Because we're covered by the blood of Christ. He has died for us. But those of you who sit here and you're, you're not a believer, why is it that God has not poured out His wrath on you? He's a holy God. He's a righteous God. He's a just God. Why has He not poured out wrath on you already? Because He's good. And He is good to all. Nevertheless, that does not mean that He is not holy, that He is not just, and He is not righteous, and that He will not punish sin. Oh, do not presume upon the kindness of God. It is intended to lead you to repentance. Let His goodness lead you to repentance. His feeding of the 5,000, His feeding of the 4,000, His feeding and providing for all is a display of His goodness. The third thing we see here is that He is a provider. See, He's compassionate, He's good, and He provides. He provides. So the 4,000 men plus the women and children all ate and were satisfied. He provided, and He didn't provide just enough to go, okay, I'll just get you by and kind of quench the pain, and, and then you can go on your way. No, it says that they all ate and they all were satisfied, right? They're all satisfied. You, you can write down and, and read later, but you can write down as a side note, Philippians 4, 10 to 20, Paul's testimony of God's provision in his life, right? That, that Paul had, by the grace of God, learned to be content in all situations, times of abundance, times of, of lack, times of need, times of prosperity, that he had learned to be content. Why? Because God provided for his needs. And so at the end of that, we have verse 19, where, where Paul's encouragement He says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Jesus Christ. 
He may not supply your every want. He probably didn't, you know, provide fish that was all, you know, all the different kinds. I'm just assuming that you didn't have, well, here's your fried fish, your grilled fish, your baked fish. Here's some with marinara. Here's some with, you know, chipotle and some Cajun. And, and you get what you want. And, and then here's some side and some hors d'oeuvres. And we're just going to make it really great what you want. No, he, he provided what they needed. He provided what they needed. God will supply your every need in Christ. He supplies your every need in Christ. Here's what I want you to see. Is it is the goodness and the kindness and compassion of God that leads him to act in the way that he provides for those whom he loves. He provides. And the greatest display of that, is it not the gospel? Is it not the provision of Jesus Christ? Is the greatest display of his provision not the good news that he knew that outside of Christ there was nothing that you and I could do to save ourselves? That there was nothing that we could do to satisfy his holy standard because we all sin and we all fall short of the glory of God? And knowing that, that we all deserve death and damnation and eternal punishment because we have rebelled against him, knowing that, is it not the good news of the gospel that he provided the necessary and sufficient sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, to die on the cross for the sins of man, to raise from the grave three days later, victorious over the death, that all who repent and believe in him would be saved? Is that not the good news that God has provided? He's provided. That is the good news. That's the gospel. That's the thing that gives us hope this morning as we gather that God is good. He's compassionate. And in his compassion and mercy, he provided a savior to save us from our sins. He's good. He's good. That's why I I pulled up the lyrics of the song we sang. Christ, our hope in life and death. We, we sing, what, what truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good. God is good. Where is His grace and goodness known? In our great Redeemer's blood. Who holds our faith when fears arise? Who stands above the stormy trial? Who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ? Do you understand what you sing? Do you, do you think about those words? What, what brings the troubled soul? What is it that can bring truth? What, can is, what truth is it that can bring calmness and peace and comfort to my troubled soul? It's that God is good, that he's good. Where is his goodness known? We just saying, is it not in the Redeemer's blood? Is it not in the cross of Christ? Is it not in the sacrifice of our Savior on the cross? But then listen to what you're saying. Who holds our faith when fears arise? Who stands above the stormy trial? Who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ? God's goodness displayed in difficult times. That in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of our faith, when it's it's rattled, when our fears arise, when a stormy trial comes upon us, the waves that bring us nigh into the shore, the rock of Christ, who brings those waves that push you to the shore, that send you to the rock of Christ? It's God in his goodness. 
who refuses to let you squander your life away, who refuses to let you pursue and to continue running headlong in sin, but brings the storms that bring you up to the cross of Christ. That is the goodness of God. He is good, He is compassionate, and He is a provider. Now, when we come to the next segment there in 16, knowing the character of God, knowing who He is, we come to this dialogue then with the Pharisees and Sadducees. And he, at this point, what Jesus has done is he was over on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in the Decapolis. He takes a boat over across the Sea of Galilee and probably, to, it says Magadan. We don't know where that is. And so scholars think that that is probably a reference or an alternative spelling to Magdala, which is on the, the west side of the Sea of Galilee. So he goes across to the Sea of Galilee and he comes to Magdala or Magadan. And the Pharisees come, and they come, and they try to test him. And what we need to see here is the choices that we make are important. The choices we, are made, we make are important. I think this passage here is going to present two important questions to us that we have to consider this morning. Two important questions. You see, what we have here is we have an instance where the, the religious establishment continues to oppose Christ, and that opposition continues to increase and intensify. Remember, we talked about as we walk through Matthew, we see this increasing opposition and, 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 um, and intensi- intensifying um, animosity from the religious establishment, from the Pharisees, and now the Sadducees to come against Christ. The Pharisees and Sadducees, you have two opposing parties that come together. They both would meet in the Sanhedrin, but they didn't like each other. But here, right, they come together. Why? Because they want to oppose Christ. They come together and they say, hey, we don't like each other, but we need to take care of this guy and figure out what's going on and get rid of him. So let's come together and let's unite together against him. And so they come and they come to test him. The Pharisees are likely just trying to undermine Christ to, to protect their religious standing, their, their power, their influence. The, the Sadducees were more of a political party. You, you know from elsewhere in the Gospels likely that they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't really believe in the miraculous. Well, the Sadducees a lot of times would figure out what religious party, or not religious, what political party would kind of be gaining influence. They would try to align themselves and figure out where they need to be politically. And so more than likely, the Sadducees are trying to either get rid of him because they're, he's threatening their, their standing politically, or they're trying to go, okay, well, if we need to, maybe we should align, and they're trying to do this thing of this kind of political uh, dance or whatever with it, right? So you have them coming together in this moment and demanding a sign. And when they do this, we look at what they demand, and Jesus reply. I think there's two important questions we need to ask. Here's the first one. Is, will you choose to close your eyes in denial? In ignorance. Will you choose to continue closing your eyes in denial and ignorance? Verses 2 to 3. Look what Jesus' response. It says that they came. They came to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. And look at his answer. He says, when, when it's evening, you say, it'll be fair weather for the sky's red. In the morning, it'll be a stormy day for the sky's red and threatening. They, they knew and they understood that red sky at night meant one thing. Red sky in the morning meant another. They knew how to read that and go, okay, here's what the weather is going to do. They understood that. And so Jesus looks and he says, listen, you can, you can do that. You can discern the signs of nature, yet you can't discern the signs of the time. Really? Are, are you that observant everywhere else in your life, but yet who's right in front of you, you're going to go, oh, I just don't know. Can't figure it out. It's confusing. Mm, can't get it. 
Yeah, too much for me. And Jesus goes, really? Really? He, he, he makes a similar point to the crowds. Talking about the discerning things in life. If you just jot down Luke 12, 54 to 56, you'll see him using the same type illustration response when he's talking to the crowds. He's saying you can discern all these things in life, yet you, you can't discern the signs that are in front of you. You can't discern what's going on, the signs of the times. Really? Are, are you going to just continue in this denial? I mean, the, the Pharisees of all people, right? Of all people, they should be able to interpret the signs of the times because they knew God's word. They knew it. They should be able to look and see the evidence and go, hey, we understand what's going on. We are smart people. We can look and observe and see things and I can look and I can hear the word of God and I can see what's going on in our world and I can see the truthfulness of it. I would say there's people probably sitting in these seats today who are in the same position. You perhaps have grown up in church you perhaps have heard all the lessons. You've heard all kinds of sermons. You've perhaps have read all sorts of books. And yet you sit and you continue to deny the signs of the times. You continue to deny the very real reality that the world is not getting better. It is getting worse. Sin is increasing. Romans 1 is being displayed every day in our world. Every day. And every day we're seeing the need for Christ. We're seeing the truthfulness of Scripture lived out. Yet, you would say, oh, I, don't, I don't know. I, don't, I, I can't figure it out. I don't know. You're choosing denial. You're choosing to close your eyes. You're choosing ignorance. You're just going to turn my head and walk away. That's the choice you can make. I, I think we see this. We, we see people making this choice, and we think about God's existence. We think about the truthfulness of God's Word. We think about the, the certainty of the resurrection. All three of those things, we see people choosing to deny them. We see people choosing ignorance. We see it all the time. I mean, just, just think about those three things. Just think about in your life, right, going about your day, and you stumble upon something, this information, you see information somewhere. Maybe it's a, a sheet of paper. You're, you're in the woods. You're mountain biking. Some of you in here mountain bike. And, and you come through, and there's a piece of paper there with something written on it. You instantly see information, and you go, someone left a piece of paper that they wrote on. You see it. Or we use computers every day, at the base of which is simple binary code, sequences of one and zero in different arrangements, different ways that program everything we do. Information. And we look at that and we see it and we go, yep, it's a computer. None of us have looked at that and gone, wow, that is an incredible accident. I can't believe that happened. Can you believe it? No, we see that. But yet, knowing that and observing that and using that power to discern and see some of these very same people look and, and they see the evidence. They go through science class. They look at it or they read articles about how fascinating and amazing DNA is. That it's made up not of just two sequences of one and zero or different sequences of those two numbers, but it's made up of four bases, A, G, C, and T, and, and different arrangements of that that provide the basis of genetic code. All of life comes back to that. It determines what we look at, like, what we do, what we, everything about us. But yet people would say, man, I don't know. Looks like an accident. It's information. 
Why, why is it that information all throughout life and creation points us to someone purposefully putting it there until it comes down to us? And we go, hmm, no, probably not pointing to design or a creator. This must be something else. Or think about the truthfulness of Scripture. Think about how the attack on the truthfulness of God's Word is. And how people choose to deny the reality of that. How people would say, let's study and let's know that Caesar existed. That he truly was. And this is just a classic example, right? That everybody would say Caesar existed and we, we know that. We study Caesar. Yet the closest manuscript evidence we have of Caesar is 900 years after his life. And there's only about 12 copies of that. We have his own writings about the Gallic Wars. We have some others who write, and none of them are very close to him at all hundreds of years later. Hundreds of years later. But yet, I'm pretty sure in your history classes, no one said, well, there is this guy, Caesar, who may have existed, and he may have done this, but we don't think it's real. Yet you come to the life of Christ. The life of Christ is attested by I think it's nearly 5,600 manuscripts prior to the printing press. 5,600. And they're within 60 years of his life and death. 60 years. Incomparable in history. Nothing else has that much evidence in all of history. And yet, some people would choose to deny and go, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it's true. It was the same thing with the resurrection. Every day, jurors sit and hear evidence. Cold case investigators go back and they look at evidence and they bring everything before. And every day, these cases are solved and looked at and determined based on evidence. Less evidence than we have for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Time and time again, the resurrection of Christ has been attempted to be disproved. And time and time again, it can't be. Time and time again, atheists look and go, I can't disprove it. I may not like it, I can't disprove it. Many of them come to faith in Christ. Some of the most famous authors you know, that's how they came to faith in Christ. But yet, men continue to choose ignorance. Continue to choose Denial, just like the Pharisees and Sadducees. Would you be considered one of them today? Would you be considered one who looks at all the evidence, sees everything around you and says, eh, no, can't do it, can't figure it out, don't know. Are you choosing denial? Are you choosing ignorance? The second question that we'll end with is this, is Will you choose life? Will you choose denial and ignorance, or will you choose life? As Jesus says there in verse 4, he says that you don't need a sign. You keep demanding signs, but your demanding of signs just shows that you're evil and adulterous. That just shows your personality. It shows your heart. It reveals what's going on in here. 
because the signs have been given. They've been shown. They've been attested. And no other sign's going to be given but the sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? What is the sign of Jonah? He explained it in Matthew 12, 40. He elaborated. He said, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The sign of Jonah showed that God is the God of life, that he is the God who saves, that he is the God who rose from the grave victoriously, that we might have salvation. That's what the sign of Jonah was. And Jesus said, you're not getting anything else. That's it. So if you're there and you're saying, I want a sign, I want you to show me this. If you're one that would say, come in today and you would say, you know what, listen, I'll believe God if you do this, if you do this. You're essentially the same thing as a Pharisee and Sadducee saying, I'm going to test you and I demand a sign. And all the while, God is looking at you and saying the same thing. You can discern the weather. You can discern all of these things in life. You have a brain. You're a smart person. But yet you would look and demand a sign from me when I have given you all the sign that you need. Open your eyes. Turn to Christ. That is the call of Matthew 16, 1-4. Open your eyes. Turn to him. He's given you the sign. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. He lives. He lives. He lives. We see it and we behold it. So leave your testing of God behind and trust Christ today. Would you behold, maybe for the first time, unbeliever, his compassion and his goodness and his kind provision of salvation through Jesus Christ on the cross? Would you turn, would you repent of your sins and trust Christ for salvation? Believer, would you just be reminded and just think about that today, the goodness and the kindness, the compassion of the Lord and his provision in your life, his provision for you, most importantly, and salvation through Christ, his provision for you and your needs in everyday life, his provision of life, and rejoice in him today? Oh, we magnify and we worship him. We worship him. And so we're going to stand and we're going to close our time together. Christians, we're going to sing. We're going to sing our hymn of praise forever Jesus. Forever Jesus. Forever Jesus. He is great and greatly to be praised. Praise him, praise him. Sing of his excellent greatness. That's what we're going to do. If you're here and you're not a believer, I would just invite you to come speak to myself or one of the other pastors. We'll be in the foyer afterwards. You can grab any one of us. I'll be down front for a few moments. If you want to come down front and speak to me, I would love to tell you more about what it means to follow Christ, to turn from your sins and trust him today. Let's pray and let's stand and let's worship our risen Savior. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for your grace. We thank you for the evidence that you've put before us and the minds that you've given us. The evidence that shows us who you are and shows us what you've done. But God, we know that at the end of the day, it is always faith. Because it is by faith that we are saved and justified. And so, God, I pray that you do a great work of, of, of salvation in the lives of friends here who are gathered who are not believers. God, would you work in their life powerfully this morning? 
For God, those of us who are believers, God, we just want to rejoice in you and exalt you and praise you for your goodness, your compassion, your provision. Oh God, you are a great God and we will forever sing your praises. In the name of Christ, amen.